and welcome to the VTC Podcast, Voices of Recovery. The VTC, or Veterans Treatment Court, is a treatment-based alternative to the traditional justice system. In lieu of going to prison, where we know nothing truly changes for a veteran, the VTC aims to address the underlying issues that led veterans to interfacing with the legal system, including mental health, trauma, and addiction. Upon completion of our two-year program, a veteran's charges are dismissed. Well, we are excited to have with us Mr. Brandon Cowan. And Brandon, you brought a special guest with us. Who is this? Stinger, the service dog or facility dog uh, for the mental health department for the Asheville VA. Wonderful, Stinger. We're glad you're here, too. And Brandon is an amazing veteran. He's going to tell us about his story. He is also a graduate of the Veterans Treatment Court and now a certified peer support working with the VA here in Asheville. So a lot to talk about. Brandon, take us back, though, and uh, share with our audience just about your uh, journey of service and what branch you were in and what job you did. Yeah, so I was in the uh, Army. I joined at 17. I was actually in high school whenever I went to basic training. So I went between my junior and senior summer, completed basic training, uh, came back for my senior year. Uh, Unfortunately for me, I I was in a car accident and broke my kneecap um, and had to wait uh, about a year um, after graduating before I went to AIT for uh, combat engineer. And then um, at Fort Bragg... um, and yeah, deployed a couple of times, four, four times. And uh, yeah, I served from 2009 till 2020 when I was medically discharged due to uh, injury sustained in combat. So talk to us about that transition out of the service into the civilian world um, and kind of the challenges that you faced. Yeah, it was really, for me, it was really tough because the military was all I'd ever known. Like, like I said, from 17, I mean, still, you know an adolescent really. Um, it's, it's really all I ever knew. So to just come out so suddenly, like I didn't, wasn't quite time for me to get out yet. My contract wasn't up until 2021. Um, and I was injured in, uh, late 2019. So November, I went to the wounded warrior battalion at Fort Bragg, um, after being in lawn stool and Fort Walter Reed. Um, so whenever I got the news that they were going to medically, discharged me. Of course, I wanted to appeal that. And, and I did. Uh, unfortunately, uh, I was unsuccessful. But the so it was like a harsh reality at that point, like everything I'd ever known was just suddenly at the snap of a finger done. And so <clears throat> I was already drinking pretty heavily, uh, using drugs, opiates. Um, and so that increased, of course, whenever I got, you know, the the life altering news because my plan was to do 20 years um, and retire because I would have only been 37. Right. Like that's ideal. And so I think that um, it was just like a culture shock, like every, everything I'd ever known. So I come back here, I'd already bought a house here um, in Western North Carolina. And um, I came back here immediately started working the day after um I was discharged. I started working in construction, which was another culture shock to me, right? Like I don't have a chain of command anymore. Like being in the military for me was easy. I just had to be in the right place at the right time in the right uniform. (laughs) And I mean, they told me when to eat, when to go to sleep, you know, so it was just a lot different having all these freedoms and all of this just civilian life is just, it's a lot different. 
Yes, that's a huge difference. And you're trying to find your way, right? Getting used to what is this civilian thing? Yeah. I don't have to report at a certain time. I can wear whatever uniform I want and let my beard grow. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So um, talk to us a little bit about then your struggles with alcohol use, with opioids, um, and how that led you to the justice system. Yeah, so I started drinking early on, and and I had some brushes with law enforcement, even in my teenage years. Um, Luckily, I I guess luckily, I don't know, it could have been unfortunately, but I was so young, and I I was in the military that they kind of just let things slide. Um, of course, lecturing me on what I was doing, but I mean, I was drinking heavily. I didn't drink every day, and same whenever I got out of the military, I didn't really drink every day. Um, I just drank really heavily when I did drink. So, um, and for like I said, I broke my kneecap in high school. I was a senior, so eighteen years old. It's in the height of the opiate pandemic where they're just over prescribing. I was 18 years old, you know, and the doctor, I remember I wasn't taking my pain medicine even as purpose. I, I didn't hardly ever take it at that point. I was not, um, I didn't like it because addiction ran in my family, even, even, uh, pills, um, ran in my family. So I, I, I kind of wanted to shy away from those. And I remember going to my doctor and, uh, saying, you know, he was like, how are you on pain meds? I said, well, I have four prescriptions that I haven't filled. And he said, well, let me give you another one just in case. <laughs> I'm like, wow. Yeah. So I, I was introduced to that at an early age. And, and I think that that really shaped the way of my future. So after going to combat and after receiving injuries and, you know, seeing things you see um, at those times, I think whenever I came back that I knew that that was a quick way for me to numb and escape uh, kind of the reality and the the emotions that I didn't really want to feel. And so as time progressed, I was using while I was in the service, I would just use, you know, few and far between. Like sometimes I'd go a month using every weekend and then I wouldn't use for six months, but I still drink. And and anybody that serves know that drinking is like a requirement, right? Like you drink whenever uh, to celebrate, you drink whenever you're punished. You just drink a lot, at least for me. That's my experience. And um, so that carried on. Um, and I received a couple of DWIs um, right around, right before I left the service. So I would come home. So I deployed 2017, 18, and then 19, three consecutive years in a row. And I would come home during those uh, on leave for a couple of months before I'd gear up for my next tour. And uh, I'd get a DUI like every time. And I wouldn't tell command. I had a secret clearance, right? And I, I wouldn't tell command about that. So because it happened here, nothing really uh was done about it, at least in the military wise, because they didn't know. And then whenever I got, uh, my last tour got injured. Um, my mom had died right before I I went to my last tour and that's whenever, um, I was engaged at the time. And and that's whenever my fiance at the time, uh, I told her that, you know, that I had been using opiates. Other than that, I'd been hiding it pretty much my entire life. Mm -hmm. And so, um, after my mom died, I I was kind of open about it, at least with her. And then Whenever I got home, I was just using really, really heavily. Got another DWI. She ends up leaving because obviously, it, you know, my addiction is full blown. Like I can't. She told me to quit. I lied to her. That's when I started using fentanyl. And it was just easier and cheaper for, for me to use. And unfortunately for me, fentanyl was like my kryptonite. Like I could quit opiates and drinking for months at a time and then continue. But with fentanyl, I tried to quit and it was just the worst withdrawal 
I had ever experienced. So uh, I got a DWI and that led me uh, to Veterans Treatment Court after many, many years of uh, some legal troubles. Like I'd gotten arrested numerous times, assault, um, public intoxication, just a lot. But um, my DWIs are the ones that stuck. And so three of them is uh, what stuck um, that I didn't. I was able to beat some. I think, honestly, I think from 2015, 2016 to 2020 to 2020, I think I had seven DWIs. But I was able to um, beat several of them. And, you know, three is what stuck. So thankfully, one of my attorneys, I think I had like three or four attorneys throughout those years. One attorney uh, told me about Veterans Treatment Court, which ultimately uh, led to where I am now. So this long journey and something I hear a lot, um, and I can relate in my own recovery, but kind of hiding from others the suffering and then the addiction really uh, we're skilled at it yeah right because they have no idea or they know we aren't truly at our best we're not the person they fell in love with say or uh, the family member that they know and love but they may not know the depths of the suffering um some veterans are really skilled at just hiding that. It sounds like you hid it for a long time yeah. from all all those you loved. Yeah, I mean, my, my family didn't know. Luckily, um, my uh, fiancé at the time, she whenever I told her, um, whenever she left, I told her, because she, she thought I'd quit. Right? She gave me the ultimatum, like, hey, you need to quit. And it was evident that I was going through something and I mean, she knew what I'd been through. So she knew, Hey, maybe it's the PTSD. Maybe it's all these other things from coming home from this deployment. Why he's acting this way. So she didn't assume that it was drugs still because I told her I'd quit. So, I mean, that just goes to show, I mean, I was even hiding the fentanyl use from her. Right. And, but luckily for me, she told my dad, she told my family uh, what was going on. So uh, it was out in the world now. Like I had to do something about it. Right. Right. And um, I don't think, this is breaking confidentiality, but in the beginning of the VTC, remnants of that remained, right? For sure, yeah. It, and actually, it got worse, honestly. Um, I, I don't think... So I, I also had to wait a year before I got into Veterans Treatment Court. So I did all the paperwork. I was approved, and then COVID happened. And I sat in on a Veterans Treatment Court that you invited me to, actually. Um, and during at the end of that court session... You announced, hey, we're, we're shutting Veterans Treatment Court down. The courthouse is shut down. So there was a whole year in limbo, literally a, a, exactly a year that I was in limbo. And so um, I met someone uh, who also used, who was able to financially sustain using, because it's not cheap to use drugs. It's, it's really not cheap at all. Right. And so um, I wasn't 100% service-connected yet. In fact, I don't even think I was service-connected at all at that point. And so I owned a home. I had all of these bills, so I couldn't afford to to use all the time. And um, so, yeah, and and I think that that's really where it kicked off, where it got a lot worse. And then the months leading into when I got into Veterans Treatment Court, I wasn't ready to change my life because it's really it's it's hard. Right. And I was actually hiding it even in Veterans Treatment Court. I had clean drug screens, but I would just not show up to court. And, you know, and I, I know I looked rough. I looked at my mug shots from, from back yeah. then, so I know I looked rough. And, you know, those things just are abnormal. And luckily, you and the entire Veterans Treatment Court team are skilled and knowledgeable enough to know that something was going on, that it just that's just not normal behavior. When you have a court date, you show up. 
or you go to jail. Like it's not normal just to not even answer your phone and not show up. So Right. Yeah. And it's usually evidenced not through your analysis, but we see the evidence first by not showing up. Yeah. By missing something as simple as uh, treatment. You didn't go to treatment. Okay. You didn't go to your community service appointment. You're not returning phone calls, not yep. answering your phone, not setting up voicemail. These are just little cues. Okay. Something's going on here. And usually your analysis is just reinforcing what we already know. Um, but so you were in the VTC, you're going through this journey. Talk to us about when that aha moment happened or when really the, the switch yeah, so <clears throat> this sounds crazy, but I, in the first seven months of Veterans Treatment Court, I had one two-week period of compliance for the first seven months. So, you know, we have court every other week, so, so twice a month, and there was one time for seven months and two, we- two weeks is all I had of, of actual compliance, which goes to show just how bad my drug use was. And so I was having to do uh, quick dips, you know, 24, 48, 72 hours. I, I think I did actually the longest quick dip I think I did was like seven days because I didn't even show up for when I was supposed to turn myself in <laughs> for a quick dip. So they stuck more on. And um, so that was that was going on. I, I wouldn't do my community service. I'd show up there late. And so finally, uh, what happened, I was at the VA for an appointment and they wanted to do a blood draw. And I'm like, well, obviously I can't do a blood draw, right? Like I got a lot of narcotics in my system. So um, I leave the VA, say that the lab was closed. And then I get a call the next day and you're like, hey, we're going to come get you. And I'm like, OK, well, I'm just going to go for a UDS and uh, or a drug screen. And, um, you know, that's going to be the end of it. Uh, it. Nothing else will happen. Uh, I may have to do a couple of days in jail. No big deal. But that's not what happened. I actually went to jail um, that day. No UDS, no anything. And I remember you came down a day or two later and was like, listen, like you're going to be doing your entire sentence, which I was looking at three years, minimum three years, maximum. So I would have been doing three years in prison. And I've, I've never been to prison um, and never want to go. But I, I just and I had a young daughter. I still have a young daughter, but I think she was like one at the time. And uh, she wasn't even one, actually. Yeah. I, I, when I left SARP, it was her first birthday. Um, so <clears throat> I, I knew that I didn't want to miss those three years. And you were like, hey, man, like, you're going to have to tell us what's going on. Something is is going on, and we just need to know. So bit by bit, I started telling you kind of what was going on. And, and um, yeah, it was just – even then I remember thinking, I can't wait to get out of here so I can – use again because th- that mentality the that's all i'd ever known even in the military you know I'd, i was hiding and using drugs hiding and using drugs and or drinking heavily and and i just knew that <clears throat> if i could get myself out of there because part of me uh part of my addiction i think was also manipulating um other people in situations to benefit myself to get whatever i needed so i would tell you a little bit and then you'd come back a day or two later and i'd tell you a little more and then finally it was all out there and then uh, that's when you introduced me to uh, medication-assisted treatment um, or Suboxone. Um, and the jail here, Buncombe County, uh, all praise to them. They offer that in in the jail. And I think they're the only one in the state, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, not many. Yeah, and that offers that. And 
And I was so opposed to it and because I was like, it's trading one for another. But luckily, you know, you're just great and you've been through everything, too. So you're like, yeah, if you look at it as a tangible item, sure. But you can't get high off of it. Like you can't like after you take your initial dose, you can take the whole bottle and you're not going to feel any different than right. you would. You know, it's not just something normal. That can, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so I remember taking Suboxone in my gel cell. My, my mind before then, I remember, was just going crazy. All I could think about was using. And I remember taking that, my first dose of Suboxone in gel, and they took me back to my cell, and I just remember my mind was clear. I just literally just sat in my cell at peace for the first time in probably my entire adult life. Wow. And it was that was really the eye-opening moment. Um, and I knew that it wasn't... It's. It, Suboxone isn't a, a fix-all. Like, there's still work involved that you have to do for yourself and for your recovery. It's it's not a – I mean, we wouldn't have any addicts if, if Suboxone was the cure-all, right? But you, I still knew I had to put in work. And, and at that time, I didn't know if I wanted to because I, it's so easy to get high. It's so easy just to drink your problems away. It's really a full-time job, especially Veterans Treatment Court in the beginning. But recovery is just mm. – it's work. Yeah, it is a full-time job. And – I'm really glad you shared about your experience with Suboxone. That's an important part of people with opioid addiction. Um, important part of their recovery. We hear it over and over. I've been on it now for 12 years. Yeah. And I tell everyone it's a conversation between my doctor and I. I don't know if I'll be on it for the rest of my life. But I do know for right now, it's providing that stability and that foundation. Yeah. Um, it's, and I, it's I love hearing that was kind of just the beginning for you and i noticed i mean you did eventually you opened up that kind of vulnerability is really tough especially for veterans yes and you began to open up and say man this is this is terrifying right this is the only thing i know the only thing i know is to not be honest to not do these things because that leads to destruction that leads to death that leads to trauma why would I do this? So just the courage it takes for you to continue to show up every day, to continue to be vulnerable. And I saw you just put one foot in front of the other. And eventually you graduated. Um, and along the way, is that when you became a certified peer support? Yeah. So, um, yeah, I did that. Um, like I, I think right around whenever I have had a year, I think you have to have a year to do the course. And so whenever I got the year, I did my certified peer support, um, and I, I didn't know that I wanted to work again because I've I've really just been all work, no play. I mean, I've been to more countries than I have states, obviously not touring countries like they're doing work for the military yeah. um, in whatever capacity that may be. But, yeah, so I, I was like, you know, I'm not sure I want to work, but the peer supports here at the SART program, um, wh- which I came through, um, were just phenomenal and it was just a joy to see the role that they played um, as a part of me and my recovery whenever I went through the program. And I knew that that would be one thing that I would want to do is help people in their recovery the way that those people helped me. So you went through the VA's 30 day inpatient program called SARP. That is kind of where you first get this idea about being a certified peer support specialist. You then go through the 40 hour training in the community you become certified and you apply for the VA position. Yep. Didn't you have an interview on the same day you graduated from veterans court? Yep. Yep. That's Mar- amazing. March 10th. Yep. March 10th, 
2023. Yeah, I, uh, I had Veterans Trimmer Corps graduation at like 1030, I think. And then I had my interview at two. Um, <laughs> and you got the job. Yeah, and I got the job. Yeah. Man, so tell the audience a little more about the work you do now as a peer support on SARP. Um, and if a veteran's out there, how do they get connected with SARP? Yeah, so what I do is um, I, I kind of have um, a different role than most peer supports here on SARP. So I work like an evening shift, like 1 to 930. And uh, because so there's groups all day until, you know, four or five. And then after four or five, you know, th- these guys, it's a uh, right now there's there's a uh, it's uh, 10, 10 guys, 10 men. Um in the program, we're going to go up to 14 eventually. Um, and after four or five o'clock, there's nothing for them to do. Like there's, they have to stay on campus. They, you know, they can't have visitors except for a couple of days on the weekend. Um, so what I try to do is get these guys out because for me in the program, whenever I was here, it was during COVID. So we couldn't leave at all. Now they can, but even after hours though, you just kind of get in your own head, right? There's nothing, you're not at your house. You're not in a comfort zone per se. So I really just try to get them out. I'll walk the track with them. I'll just be there. We'll have movie night. I'll, I'll play cornhole with them. We have Stinger, the facility dog to kind of greet them and just, cheer cheer things up because it's not fun even though you know you need to be there it's not fun being in the hospital it's not fun even though it's you know it's going to benefit your life there's it's just nobody wants to eat hospital food and stay in some shared rooms for 28 days as a grown man you don't you don't want to do that and so um but if anybody's interested in getting into sarp um you should talk to your counselor. And if you don't have one, then um, you can always check yourself in, especially if you're going through um, some uh, depression or mental issues or whatever, you can check yourself in and go to what they call the RU, which is the Warriors Recovery Unit. Um, and they can uh, that can really expedite your, your way to get in and to SARP because you're already there in the hospital. Um, and SARP is for people with... Um, substance use, but also co-occurring disorders such as PTSD, anxiety, depression. So that's really, it doesn't focus just on substance use. It focuses on both, which is really phenomenal. Right, right. Man, so you're doing great work now. You're giving back your lived experience or really lived expertise (laughs) is now uh, paying it forward and helping other veterans in their journey of recovery. I mean, it's amazing to behold, truly an honor. So before we close up, I'm interested, what are some things that you do for fun? I know I've seen some pictures of these massive uh, fish that you've caught. What What do you do for fun? Yeah, so I fly fish. I actually went to Cherokee uh, Sunday uh, and fly fish. I hike. Um, I have a lab myself, a, a dog. I throw Frisbee with him every day. He's really annoying, so he keeps me busy. Um I like chilling in my hammock in the evenings. Um, I really, really have started liking cornhole. I played in cornhole tournaments, which I started this at the VA. So working at the VA, helping veterans also helps me. So like we have cornhole, started playing cornhole with veterans. Now I'm playing cornhole in tournaments all of a sudden. So it's really cool to just kind of learn and grow as a person and, and I'll try anything like I've, I've went to baseball games which I've, I love baseball games I mean uh, I haven't went to a concert yet since I've been sober just because concerts can kind of be a little hectic um, but yeah I just really enjoy being outdoors and hanging out with other veterans um, and just learning and growing every day man <laughs>
Hell yeah. Man, well, thank you so much, Brandon. We appreciate you and your continued service. Thank you. No F-bombs. Hey, no F-bombs. We're pretty proud. No bleeping out today. Dude, I didn't even cuss. (laughs) I know. I'm impressed. Hey, well, thank you, brother. And thank you to all our listeners. Stay tuned next week where we continue our conversation and hear more about the voices of recovery. This is the V2C Podcast signing off. Mm -hmm.